My name is Kirby Mallon. I'm the president of Cefesa. As I said, we're doing monthly podcasts to keep our membership engaged and uh, knowledgeable about the ongoing issues in our industry. Today, I have with us Charlie Serrata from NAFM. Charlie's been with uh, NAFM for quite some time and is very knowledgeable in his background, specifically to government regulations. Charlie, welcome. Thank you, Kirby. It's nice to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Do you first want to give us a little background about yourself and, and what you've done in the industry? Absolutely. Um, as Kirby mentioned, I've been with NAFM for a long time. My career with the association started in 1990 after I had spent about five years in retail and moved over to work with Smith Buckland, which is the association management firm that managed uh, NAFM at the time and continues to manage our trade show. Working with NAFM, my responsibilities primarily were with uh, trade show marketing, and I eventually added ad administrative roles, uh, such as the CFSP program, uh, different industry relations outreach, and then eventually when NAFM went standalone in uh, 2000, 2001, uh, Deidre Flynn, who became the executive vice president, invited me to come and work with NAFM full-time and uh, I did, accepted that opportunity and started in February 2002 as the Director of Member Services. And in that role, I was responsible for a variety of different uh, assignments, including research, again, media outreach, technical liaison, et cetera. Around 2015, my role changed and I became Vice President of Regulatory and Technical Affairs, which means my role is now responsible for uh, issues related to government uh, codes and standards and uh, to some degree lobbying. And I still am responsible for the NAFLM Technical Liaison Committee. Uh, so it's been a long ride, uh, continue to enjoy it. And I appreciate working with the industry. And as a side note, I've been responsible for uh, CFESA Liaison for a number of years. And I appreciate working with the service community because uh, in many ways, the service community has the front-facing role. Uh, the manufacturers make the stuff and the operators buy it, but uh, once the operators take responsibility for it, they wanna know who's gonna be servicing the equipment. And that's the most important thing to them. So I appreciate the opportunity to work with Cefesa in such a close uh, relationship over these past many years. Right, well, Cefesa and uh, NAFM have certainly been uh, uh, close allies throughout the years. And I really do appreciate everything that you've done for Cefesa over the years. And you've been very knowledgeable, uh, specifically with regulations. Uh, most Cefesa members, I believe, don't really spend a lot of time thinking about regulations and how it affects, his, affects a typical Cefesa member. So I guess my first question to you, Charlie, is why should Cefesa members watch government regulations? Is this something we should really be worried about, should be concerned about? Well, at, at face value, it seems that most of the issues coming out of Washington and the states, for that matter, impact manufactured goods. And that's probably true when you look at these issues directly. But the ripple effect they create impacts the entire industry. So as an example, in our industry, the Department of Energy's regulations for energy efficiency affect automatic commercial ice makers, standalone refrigeration, walk-in coolers and freezers, and pre-rinse spray valves. And if you install, service, or repair these types of items, you'll want to have 
at least a basic awareness of these regulations because your customers might ask. And this kind of knowledge can help position your agency as a more complete resource and a business partner. Now, in some cases, the Environmental Protection Agency regulations restrict the types of refrigerants that can be used. So gas leaks that might occur and then how to safely capture, contain and dispose of these gases at the end of life are very important issues. And in some cases, your agency may be held liable for improper handling of these materials and other substances. So from that aspect, it's not just a business relationship situation, but it's also a situation of dollars and cents where you could be paying fines if you're not handling these items properly. So you definitely should know what's going on with these regulations. You don't necessarily have to know about all the ins and outs of the engineering aspects per se, uh, but it sure would be helpful if you know uh, what kind of regulations you have to capture or what kind of uh, materials you have to capture and contain appropriately. Well, so refrigeration, um, the, what I remember hearing, you know, was always about the ozone. Uh, R12 back in the day uh, was destroying the ozone. Uh, so why um, specific to uh, refrigerants are they constantly changing? Well, refrigerants are constantly changing because the EPA looks at uh, those substances, particularly HFCs, uh, hydrofluorocarbons, as uh, global warming potential agents. Uh, they could impact the ozone layer. And because of the increased scrutiny on climate change, the Environmental Protection Agency is working to take those high GWP substances out of circulation in favor of more natural refrigerants. And so that work is ongoing and something that we've been monitoring. Uh, from a NAFTA standpoint, uh, we support uh, those efforts, but we want to make sure that they're done in a timeline that makes it economically feasible and technologically achievable. And so we're constantly working with uh, the Environmental Protection Agency and the manufacturing community to try and make sure that process is done intelligently and in a way that the industry can uh, support it appropriately. And with that comes the responsibility to communicate that information out to channel partners, uh, specifically Cefesa, because as I said earlier, um, your members are the ones who have to be front facing with customers or operators to make sure that the operators understand that what refrigerants are going into the appliance actually meet uh, these codes and standards. Right, so the, the latest uh, refrigerant is actually propane, correct? Propane is uh, a natural refrigerant, yes. And it's one that is being used in many ways to replace uh, some of the typical refrigerants that were used in standalone refrigerators, uh, like 404, for example, is a refrigerant that is being replaced uh, by propane in some cases, yes. There seems to be a, uh, a fear uh, with this new refrigerant that's basically propane. And I hear a lot of people talking about it, it, it's, it's going to explode. I, I don't want to use that. Uh, how do we get people past that fear? Propane charges in appliances are actually quite small. They're about the size of a butane lighter. And uh, that means that they are relatively uh, less volatile than one might suspect. However, the perception is that the propane itself uh, is highly flammable and it is restricted in certain areas. For example, you can't use propane in a vending machine in the uh, vestibule of a store. Uh, 
Um, so that might be an issue. But overall, uh, propane is relatively safe when it's used out in population. If it's at the manufacturing facility, the tanks themselves are situated outside the factory uh, because there's a high amount of, of material and containing those in a small area is very important. And manufacturers have taken steps in order to mitigate the potential risks. So there is a perception factor involved there. So Charlie, uh, other than refrigerants, what other issues is NAFM watching or working on that, that CFESA members should know about? Well, over the past several years, NAFM has dedicated significant effort to address environmental and energy regulations outlined in both the Clean Air Act and the Energy Policy and Conservation Act in particular. So those two have been the primary areas of focus. And you can apply those measures to just about every type of commercial kitchen appliance, especially refrigeration that we've been talking about. And then of course, anything with a burner on the hot side. And we're also increasingly focused on issues that impact taxes, tariffs, and trade because policies here impact manufacturers and often have an effect on the inputs or the components that go into these appliances and the overall or the, the final cost or expense of what they are. Uh, so those are some of the main issues that we've been addressing over the past few years. Uh, the current administration uh, has increased taxes and tariffs. Um, and the incoming administration um, may may get rid of that stuff. Do you do you have any any thoughts on what the current administration has done as far as NAFM is concerned, or the industry as a whole, compared to what you believe the uh, new administration will will do, or get rid of, or add as far as tariffs and taxes and stuff like that? Well, that's that's a difficult or a very complicated situation to address because. Uh, we anticipate that President-elect Biden's win puts energy in the environment center stage. And it brings new life into climate change and clean energy policy. But achieving the most ambitious planks of his platform hinges upon which political party controls the U.S. Senate next year. So that's something that we're watching very closely. And as I mentioned, those two regulations, the Energy Policy Act, and BPAC, um, those regulations can be changed, but changing them can be like turning an aircraft carrier around in the middle of a river. But the president himself sets the tone and can use tools such as executive orders to address issues that are near and dear to him or her. The approach during the Obama administration serves as kind of a bellwether of what we should expect. And at that time, the prevailing regulatory attitude was somewhat to the effect of, we'll tell you and your members what's best for you. During the early days of the Trump administration, the approach changed, and there was an eagerness to work with business and manufacturers to follow a more collaborative approach. And a good example of that is the one-in, two-out regulatory order, where you could introduce a new regulation but two older regulations had to be removed from the docket. So that was a good scene or a good sign. But then the steel and aluminum tariffs came through around uh, March 2018 and things completely changed. 
The Biden administration has called climate change an urgent crisis, which leads us to expect that his administration is going to follow an aggressive agenda, which commingles the energy and environmental issues that NAFM typically watches. And that means that our industry needs to saddle up and be ready for action and ready for change. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is gonna be negative though. From a policy standpoint, this aggressive energy could lead to a more stable regulatory environment by bridging the gap between federal and state standards. And it could ease the regulatory game of somewhat whack-a-mole we've been playing over the past few years as states work to establish their own individual hydrofluorocarbon or HFC standards as we talked about a few minutes ago. So in fact, we all owe thanks to Pine Tree Food Equipment for helping temper one of those efforts earlier this year in Maine. And working with Pine Tree and uh, Hospitality Maine, we were actually able to get Maine legislators to reduce their HFC restrictions. So that was a very positive win thanks in part to the folks at Pine Tree. So the resulting crazy quilt of standards complicates matters for the industry's cold side. But we believe that predictable standards could lead to growth in research and development of new appliances because the industry will know what's expected and they can move toward those clear targets. On the hot side, the Biden administration is expected to bring the U.S. back into global environmental conversations. And the president-elect has made no bones about pursuing clean energy, which means greater scrutiny and limits on fossil fuels and what's coming out of the stack. So two years ago, there was a major effort in California to study NOx or carbon emissions from commercial food service equipment, anything with a burner. And those test results were put on a shelf in favor of other regulatory priorities. The Biden administration's tone could raise the profile of those test results and give them a new, a renewed sense of urgency and expand them into new areas. So the approach ahead is not necessarily going to be an easy one and it will require a significant amount of work. But on the plus side, the benefits could be incentive-based technology-focused solutions that could be beneficial for the entire industry in the long run. Well, Charlie, it sounds to me that uh, consistency is something that every industry would want, and we would love to have consistency uh, with, the new, with the new administration uh, and a clear path of, of what we can do. You know, I've always said, you know, give me the rules and we'll figure out a way to work with the rules or around the rules. Um, and obviously, we'd want a seat at the table if there's decisions decisions made within our industry. So you mentioned you mentioned pine tree. Interesting. What other what what else could Cefesa companies do to help with NAFM's efforts? Well, there actually is an awful lot um, because we're always looking for impact statements or anecdotes to incorporate and share in our comments. And so that is especially important if Cefesa members have something specific that they would like to share. We would love to hear about it and serve as the megaphone for the industry. We, NAFM, shares a fair amount of information with Cefesa actively through uh, the uh, five family roundtables and also through ongoing conversations with uh, Cefesa staff 
and to tip hat tip my hat to Sylvester staff I'm on the phone quite a bit with Heather and making sure that Sylvester receives our advocacy updates so that staff is aware of what's going on and we're able to flag some issues that might impact service agencies and that's really how Pine Tree got engaged in the whole HFC issue and that, to back up a little bit uh, the other positive thing that happened was in April 2019 the state of Colorado introduced their HFC restriction plan and at that time I went out to Colorado to meet with the state legislators in Denver and uh, John Schwint noted that I was in uh, his city and gave me a whole lot of grief for not letting him know in advance because he could have been there to help me support the whole effort. So that illustrated a need for NAFM to be much more aggressive in communicating what we were doing to our channel partners, specifically Cefesa, uh, because John had some specific information that made meeting some of the HFC regulations a little bit more challenging in Colorado. And we wouldn't have known that without his advice. And so it illustrates a way that Cefesa members can take active involvement in some of the things that we're doing. Hmm. Very interesting. So communication is key as usual. As usual, yes. With every aspect of, of business. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Um, let me, let me pivot real quick uh, and discuss COVID. Um, a, lot, a lot of things are happening very quickly, and um, you know, we, we possibly could have these vaccines available to um, U.S. citizens uh, in a very short period of time. In fact, the U.K., I think, uh, as of today, uh, is vaccinating their people. Uh, do you have any thoughts, Charlie, of uh, you know the, the COVID in general, uh, or um, now they're talking about another relief package, um, the, the COVID relief package and how that would affect our industry. Sure. As, as you probably, as you're kind of alluding to, Kirby, uh, for months leading up to last month's election, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the White House negotiators failed to reach an agreement on another round of emergency aid, which was then in the range of about $2 trillion dollars. And that number is extraordinarily huge and, and it, the scope of it can't be lost on anyone. A big breakthrough was announced last week in the form of a bipartisan package in the range of about $908 billion as the baseline for talks. And this is a big move. It's reported that this amount includes 300 uh, million per, or th I'm sorry, $300 per week in unemployment insurance. 300 billion for the Paycheck Protection Program, 250 billion for state and local government assistance, some temporary liability shields, which is very important to manufacturers and any business owners, 504 billion for health and vaccine distribution, and no provision for another round of stimulus checks. So that's what's currently being discussed in Washington. And if this proposal stands, it ticks several boxes that are important to both sides and a growing number of House and Senate members say the package is something they can support. But that said, all of this needs to take place sometime this week. And Washington is also discussing 
refinancing the government and the fact that the government will again be out of money uh, by Friday. So they've got to worry about that issue too. So there's quite a bit happening, uh, not only from a COVID relief standpoint, but also from a refunding the government situation. Uh, would you look, would you want to get into some other issues related to uh, restaurants and uh, some of the bills that are being proposed? Uh, absolutely. I, you know, I live in Philadelphia. My, and Elmer Schultz is based out of Philadelphia. And um, you may or may not know, uh, they shut down all indoor dining at all uh, Philadelphia restaurants. And as you know, it's, you know, 40 degrees and raining right now in Philadelphia. So no one's eating outdoors. So the, the restaurants, at least in, in my neck of the world, are, are dying on the vine. Um, last I um, statistic I have is one in six restaurants are closed. It's much higher in Philadelphia. Uh, many, many restaurants just said we're closed. Um, and that, that regulation is uh, in effect until January 1st. So, um, yes, I'm very concerned about the, the, the individual restaurant tour and the restaurant, the restaurant act is, uh, absolutely needs to be passed in a timely manner or else these restaurants are just not going to come back. You're, you're absolutely right. And that's, that's the bread and butter for all of us. Those are our customers. Those are our business partners. Those are our friends. And you, you, I think Kirby, you mentioned a bill. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you just mentioned it again called the Restaurants Act. And the full name is the Real Economic Support that Acknowledges Unique Restaurant Assistance Needed to Survive. It's a mouthful. Restaurants Act. If passed in the Senate, it would provide $120 billion in relief through a grant program administered by the Treasury Department. It would provide relief for restaurants, bars, cafes, and other brick-and-mortar businesses, of course, but also caterers who saw their business dry up almost overnight as people canceled or postponed events before the whole shutdown. So um, this effort would supplement the PPP loans and address criticism from restaurant owners and employees alike that, say, that said that the PPP program didn't work for the industry. And as CEFESA members know better than just about anybody, many of these restaurant employees remain out of work or they've seen their wages take a big hit because of reduced businesses. And then the enhanced benefits of the CARES Act itself ended in late July. So according to the Restaurants Act, four in 10 restaurants remain closed. And this goes back to your point, Kirby, about how many restaurants are probably on life support for now. And recent surveys that have found that operators have laid off about 91% of hourly workers and 70% of salaried workers. So those are big numbers. And most businesses that are open are struggling to make the numbers work, even with limited capacity. So only one in five business owners say they feel confident that they can keep their restaurants open. And these closings have ramifications beyond the dining room because it also means less business for farmers, fishermen, equipment manufacturers, and then of course the people who service these appliances in the restaurants. So the act will provide restaurant stabilization grants that will cover the difference between 2019 revenues and projected revenues for 2020. While PPP and Economic Injury Disaster Loan or EIDL loan recipients 
will have to subtract forgiven loans from the maximum amount for the grants. Business owners don't have to pay back these grants unless they close their businesses before the end of 2020, in which case they'll have to return any unspent funds. And if the grant exceeds revenues at the end of the year, it'll be converted to a loan with 1% interest in a 10-year term. So I know this is a lot of detail, but uh, to sum it up, the money can be used for pretty much anything a restaurant needs, like payroll uh, with some restrictions and uh, benefits, mortgage, maintenance, rent, uh, supplies, etc. The act does put some limits that restrict it to uh, a smaller restaurant so the business can't be publicly traded or part of a chain with 20 or more businesses of the same name. And that addresses some of the concerns that initially came out of the PPP loan that uh, when that process opened, bigger and more established, established businesses jumped on the funds. And of course, that was because they had the, the legal teams uh, who were able to uh, act quickly and take, uh, take advantage of that opportunity. Not saying they did anything bad. It was just something that they uh, were able to do much faster and more swiftly than other people. So for the first 14 days of funds from the Restaurant Act, only restaurants with annual revenues of one and a half million or less will be able to apply. And the act also emphasizes getting funds to businesses owned by women and minorities. The act will have about 300 million to administer the program. And of that pot, 60 million will be for outreach to marginalized and underrepresented communities. So that's really important. The uh, way that service agents can get involved with these efforts is to go to saverestaurants.com, S-A-V-E restaurants.com, and urge Congress to help save restaurants now before they leave Washington for the holidays. So that's a very important step is to make your voice heard and visit that website and throw your support behind this effort. I absolutely agree 100%. Charlie, and uh, I know that the PPP money for the typical Sofessa company came at the right time, and it worked perfectly for the typical Sofessa company, and it allowed us the opportunity to not lay off our employees. And um, it sounds to me like the, the Restaurants Act is uh, designed much like the PPP, uh, and I remember clearly the restaurants, the restaurateurs said, it's, it doesn't work for me. Uh, you know, I'm not going to take the money because I'm not, I'm not open. Why would I pay my employees when I'm not, I'm not even open to, to, to serve food? So what you just described, Charlie, is very encouraging because it really sounds like they, they put thought into it and they've uh, maybe made some adjustments from what they learned from the PPP loans. And that's great news. And everybody should encourage uh, their uh, representatives to pass uh, the Restaurants Act. Again, uh, Charlie said it was at uh, save, saverestaurants.com, correct? That's correct, yes. Excellent, excellent. Well, I would think that's the biggest takeaway from our discussion here today. I know that, um, you know, the the, the, the local restaurateurs are our friends, our neighbors, and we should support our community as much that we possibly can. I would hate to see a, a situation where, um, our only dining options are these big uh, chain accounts, and that would be horrible. And not, that's not to say there's anything wrong with the big chain accounts, but uh, you definitely want to support the people whose 
names are on the back of your kids' baseball jerseys. Um, that's very important um, because they live right next door to you. Right, right. I have one more point, um, and this has to do with the PPP loans. There is an effort that has started over the past week, and the business community has united around one key must-pass item, which is to restore Congress's original intent and avoid a $120 billion tax hike on Main Street businesses by clarifying the correct tax treatment of PPP loans. So Cefesa, FIDA, and NAFM, and more than 564 national and state-based trade groups have urged Congress to act before the end of this session, again, it's uh, coming up this Friday, to prevent an avoidable catastrophe for millions of small businesses that without congressional action will face a surprising and in many cases insurmountable tax bill next year. So as you mentioned, Kirby, uh, the primary goal of PPP was to keep workers on payroll and off unemployment insurance. And the size of the loan was tied to an employer's payroll and to help qualify for loan forgiveness, the employer needed to spend the loan amount within a limited time and keep those workers employed. So consistent with this goal that the PPP loan proceeds should be spent quickly and on workers, Congress made clear that any loan forgiveness would be excluded from gross income for tax purposes. So despite this intent, the IRS issued a notice 2020-32 that ruled that forgiven amounts would continue to be tax-free, but the expenses used to qualify for loan forgiveness would no longer be deductible. So in practical terms, the result is the same as if the forgiven about amounts were fully taxable. And while the correctness of the IRS position continues to be debated, what you can't debate is the congressional intent. And Congress intended for these forgiven amounts to be tax-free and failure to follow through on this policy will have significant negative consequences on these small businesses that we've been talking about. And many uh, PPP loan recipients retained the employees on their payroll, even when there was little or no work to perform in compliance with the intent of the program. But IRS changed the rules after the businesses took out the loans and business owners are now being asked to pay what amounts to a surtax on their workforce. And without congressional action, businesses will face this unexpected tax bill when they file their taxes for 2020 as they continue to struggle with government mandated, mandated shutdowns or slowdowns. So as you've indicated, many of these businesses will close and never reopen. So this senseless tax policy stands both the letter and the spirit of this PPP on its head. So with Congress actively negotiating a new COVID response that we talked about earlier, now is the time to contact your representatives in Washington, not only for the Save Restaurants Act, but also to ask them to correct this PPP error. And one last item on a separate note, since all of the CEFESA members are small businesses, we wanna make sure that you are on the lookout for grant and loan fraud and phishing attempts, particularly those that seem to be coming from the Small Business Administration. And the SBA continues to stress that if you are contacted by someone claiming to be from the SBA offering grants or loans, 
your first reaction should be to suspect fraud because that's not what the SBA does. And instead, be sure any email communication in particular is from sba.gov, not sba.com. It should be from sba.gov. And if not, be sure to delete or ignore the message and then report it to the SBA so that they can chase down the folks who are doing this. Very important, want to make sure that no CFSA members are harmed by this kind of activity. Wow, that's uh, I did not I did not know that. Uh, and you're absolutely right that uh, the intent was not to be taxed after the fact. So I'm glad that you've uh, cleared that up for uh, the audience. Well, again, thank you very much, Charlie, for your time today. Uh, and I'd like to thank the audience for listening today. As always, Charlie is full of information. And um, thank you so much, Charlie, for your discussion today. Hey, thanks, Kirby. Look forward to seeing you in person sometime soon.